You're listening to the Holistic Nootropics Podcast, your home for holistic, evidence-based cognitive enhancement strategies. And now your host, Eric Levi. Hey, what is going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Holistic Nootropics Podcast, where we discuss using nootropics, biohacking, and nutrition to help you boost your cognition. My name is Eric, and we have an awesome podcast lined up for you today. Just a quick second to mention, if you are new to the podcast, then please take a moment and consider subscribing. If you enjoy what you're hearing, then leave a nice review over on Apple Podcasts. If you're watching the video version of this on YouTube, then subscribe over there. And if you feel any sort of way throughout the podcast, you have a comment, question, concern, critique, leave that down in the comments below and I'll do my best to respond to all those as they come in. And if you are someone who is interested in finding the best quality supplements and nootropic products on the market today, then head on over to holisticnootropics.com and download a free copy of my supplement buying guide. This is a fully comprehensive guide that will walk you through ingredient by ingredient on how to find the best quality supplement and nootropic products on the market today, because let's face it, you go to your local GNC, you go to Costco, you go to Amazon, there is a lot of junk on the market. And let's face it, the supplement market is a $100 billion industry and 99.9% of it is flushed down the toilet every year. That's because a lot of these supplements use really poor quality products, excipients, fillers to really cheapen the brand. So if you want to skip all that and get the best quality products, head on over to holisticnootropics.com and get that supplement buying guide. Okay, on to today's episode. Today on the podcast, I have Dr. Glenn Livingston, PhD. Glenn is a veteran psychologist and the author of the book, Never Binge Again, and the founder of neverbingeagain.com. Glenn, welcome to the Holistic Nootropics Podcast. Nice to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this. Yes, as have I. This is such a cool topic to talk about, you know, like the psychology around binging, around eating. Of course, you know, one big thing that I talk about on this channel a lot is just the connection that your nutrition has on your mindset. And really just, you know, that whole idea of binging is something that, you know, we all struggle with, myself included. So, you know, before we dive into the particulars of this topic, let's get into your story a little bit. How did you find your way to becoming a PhD and really focusing on this specific topic? Well, I, I basically ate my way. <laughs> to, to, not to becoming a PhD, but to focusing on this particular topic. I, I had a serious problem. I, I think I was about 280, maybe as much as 300 pounds. Um, I hovered between like 200 and 215, 220 during the pandemic, maybe. Um, but I, when I was, when I was 17, I, I'm 6'4", I'm modestly muscular without doing much about it. And I, I figured out that if I worked out two hours a day, that I could eat whatever I wanted to. So, you know, double pizzas, boxes of muffins, boxes of chocolate bars, anything that wasn't nailed down was pretty much fair game. And if you pass by the Woodbury Country Deli in the 90s and they were out of pizza and Pop-Tarts, there's a good chance I was there before you. So I, I, I didn't think that was a problem actually in the, in the early days because I was able to maintain my weight and, um, you know, I had the time to sleep it off and I was tall and a happy teenager and I was doing teenage things. But when I got a little bit older and I was, you know, 22, 23, and I was married and my metabolism slowed down a little bit 
And I was commuting two hours a day to school and to see patients and then driving back and um, having to work in the business. And then God forbid, my wife wanted to talk to me. Uh, we're no longer married, but you know what I mean? And, and um, with that kind of charm, with that kind of charm, yes. <laughs> yeah, the, fellas, get, let me give you the lesson. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I get it. Yeah. God forbid you want to talk to me. Um, you know, I just didn't have the time to work out. And I, I found that the food had a hold on me anyway. It's like it had a life of its own. And it really bothered me, not so much because of the weight, although I did start to gain weight back then. It bothered me because of the, um, the obsession. Like I, I couldn't stop thinking about food. I'd be, I'd be sitting in a, in a room with a couple that just found out about an affair and I'd be thinking, when can I get the next pizza? Right. Mm -hmm. Or when can I get to the deli and dislodge my jaw and empty the contents of the first tray into it? Um, or it'd be a, with a suicidal person. And I never lost anybody, thank goodness. But, um, you, you know, in psychology is not, it's not really an intellectual endeavor purely. You have to know a lot of things, but uh, you have to convince people to love and trust you enough in order to think new thoughts and do new things and, and leave their comfort zones. And it was very important to me to be a good psychologist because there are 17 psychotherapists in my family. That's all I ever wanted to do. And, um, but, but I, I don't think I was, I mean, I was, I was good because I was smart and I studied a lot, but, and I was dedicated, but I wasn't really there lending people my soul in the way that I, really needed to be because I was obsessed with food. And, and so because my ex-wife traveled for business and we didn't have children, I had a lot of time for a second career. So right around that time, I also started consulting for industry. I was an advertising research consultant for um, largely big food and big pharma. And I was kind of on the wrong side of the war. I helped sell sugar to kids and, mm. you know, did things that um, I think might keep me out of heaven. <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm, I'm contrite at this point and I've been working hard to fix it, but, but oh. um, I was on the wrong side of the war. I was definitely on the wrong side of the war. And I saw what, um, I saw what these companies were doing. They, they were engineering these hyper palatable food-like substances, like, like concentrations of starch and sugar and oil and excitotoxins and salt. And it was all aimed at the reptilian brain without giving you enough nutrition to feel satisfied. Right. And, 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 and every time you're looking for love at the bottom of a bag or a box or a container, there's some fat cat in a white suit and a mustache that's laughing all the way to the back. So I saw what they, was, they were doing and I started to have an inkling, like maybe it wasn't a purely psychological problem, but it didn't really dawn on me for a while. So at first I went to the best psychologist and the best psychiatrist and I thought, well, maybe if I could fill the hole in my heart, then I wouldn't have to keep trying to fill the hole in my stomach. Um, and I had a very soulful journey. I went to Overeaters Anonymous. Um, I tried to have a spiritual awakening. I saw nutritionists. I took medication. I even did my own 40,000 person study to understand the psychology of the particular foods that people chose. I had this idea that maybe if I knew why people were stressed and what foods they chose under certain types of stress, that maybe I could figure out what the psychology was behind it. Um, and so, so I went for 15, 20 years trying to do this kind of thing before this all really dawned on me. 
Then I was analyzing that study. It took many, many years. And um, it's back in the days that internet clicks were cheap. And I saw that people who were stressed about their about their love life or were feeling a little depressed or lonely, they tended to go to chocolate. And chocolate was always my thing. I always started with chocolate. I'd have the, you know, the pizza and the pasta and the Pop-Tarts later on, but I always started with chocolate. And I discovered that there was this, you know, loneliness associated with it. And then I discovered that um, people who were struggling with chips, they tended to be, uh, kind of to be stressed at work and people who were struggling with pasta and bagels and like soft, chewy things the most, they tended to be stressed at home. And I remember this moment when I decided to ask my mom about the chocolate thing. And I said, look, I have this really large study and it's pretty clear that people that feel obsessed with chocolate, they, they run to it when they feel a little lonely or brokenhearted or depressed or sometimes when they need energy. I said, you know, you raised me, you're also a therapist. Why do I go to chocolate? I, I know I'm not in a great marriage and I'm unhappy and everything, but why do I rent the chocolate when I feel like that? And mom gets this horrible look on her face. And she says, I'm so sorry, honey. And I said, mom, it's okay. Whatever it was, it was 40 years ago. And, you know, just trying to figure it out. She says, I'm so sorry. But when you were one year old in 1965, your dad was a captain in the army and they were talking about sending him to Vietnam, and I was terrified. At the same time, my father, your grandfather, had just gotten out of prison, and I didn't know he was guilty. I didn't know he was doing these things, and I had always idolized him. He was my one salvation in life, so I was really depressed. So half the time when you came running to me for love or you know, to play or even for some healthy food, I was sitting and staring at the wall, and I didn't have it to give you, so I kept a refrigerator on the floor with a little bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup in it. And I'd say, honey, go get your Bosco. And you'd go crawling over to the, um, crawling over to the refrigerator. You'd take out the Bosco, you go into a chocolate sugar coma. And you would think that if it really was a hole in my heart or some big psychological thing, that that would be the movie moment where we had a big cry and a big hug and we forgive each other. And then I'd never have trouble with chocolate again. But it turned out I had even more trouble with chocolate at that point because um, there was this little voice in my head that said, um, you know what, Glenn, you're right. Our mama left a big chocolate sized hole in her heart. And until we can get out of the marriage and find the love of our life and get rid of this loneliness, we're going to have to keep binging on chocolate. Yippee, let's go get some more right now. So that was interesting. That was a clue to me that maybe it wasn't the underlying emotional conflict, but some justification, some voice of justification. That was the problem. I'm almost done. And then I'll let you ask those questions. I'm sorry. I'm being a little long. No, this is great. Please, please go. This is, this is, there's so much good nuggets in here. Okay. So there are a couple of other things that came together. So basically I'm going about this, trying to love myself and trying to fill a hole in my heart. But between the study that I did with mom and the, the um, talk that I had with mom and the study that I did, um, and, and seeing what the big corporations were doing with, um, with, with their, with their food-like substances, targeting the lizard brain. I started to study neurology a little bit, and I recognized that it seems like the source of overeating and binge eating is the reptilian brain. You know, that part of the brain that looks at something in the environment and says, do I eat it? Do I mate with it? Or do I kill it? It's like, if this is a reptilian brain, eat, mate, or kill. It's, there's no love there. 
it's like a bad college drinking game. It's just eat, eat, mate, or kill. Then there's the the uh, mammalian brain that goes on top of that that says, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what impact will that have on the people that you love, on your tribe? And then there's the neocortex that goes on top of that and says, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what impact does that have on your long-term goals, on the kind of person you're trying to be, on your music, on your spirituality, on your art, your contribution to society? So basically, I was working up here in the upper brain thinking this was the source of the problem, but it seems like the source of the problem was down here. And the big food companies knew that. The big advertising companies knew how to press our buttons. We can talk more about that if you want to. Um, and, and so I decided, after reading some alternative addiction treatment literature in, in drugs and alcohol, that this was more of a reptilian brain problem. And I had to take control of it the way that I took control of other bodily organs. For example, Eric, if I really had to pee now, I would tell my bladder, look, I hear you, but I'm in the middle of this call with Eric and I'll take care of you afterwards, right? I'm not going to ignore it, but I'll take care of you afterwards. If there was a really attractive woman passing outside my window, I would not run after and start, start hooting or run up and kiss her. You know, I would, I would probably go hide in the, hide in the closet knowing me, but, 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 um, but the point is that just because my testicles are generating a really strong biological urge doesn't mean that I have to act on them. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, why is this any different? Now, it's a little different because there are billions of dollars pointed at it, you know, trying to overstimulate it and break our hungry and full meters and and get us to ignore our best judgment about it. But the apparatus is still the same. OK, so here's what I did. This is the embarrassing part because. You read my credentials. I'm a sophisticated psychologist. You've seen me in all these, you know, major periodicals and TV shows and things like that. The way that I recovered from my own food problem, very serious food problem with triglycerides over a thousand and, you know, uh, plenty of weight to lose and all kinds of health problems. I decided that I was going to call my reptilian brain my inner pig. I wish I called it something different because I didn't know this was going to be a public thing, but I called it my inner pig. I decided I had to draw very clear lines in the sand so I would know when the pig was awake and when it was sleeping. So I would know what was healthy behavior and what was unhealthy behavior. So if I, I was going to have to catch this thing trying to act up and it's going to have to be like an alpha wolf and, and shut it back down. So for example, I made a rule that said, I will never eat chocolate on a weekday again. I'll only ever have chocolate on Saturday and Sunday. Then when I would be at a Starbucks on a Wednesday afternoon and there'd be a big hairy chocolate bar at the counter calling my name. And I heard this little voice that said, you know what, Glenn, you worked out hard enough. It would be just as easy to start your silly rule again tomorrow. Go ahead and get the chocolate. You won't gain any weight, I'm sure. Um, I would say, wait a minute. That's not me. That's my inner pig. My inner pig is squealing for its pig slop on a Wednesday afternoon. Chocolate on a Wednesday is pig slop. I don't eat pig slop and I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And as ridiculous and primitive as that sound, it would, it would wake me up and give me a few extra microseconds at the moment of impulse to remember that I had free will and I could make the choice if I wanted to. It wasn't a miracle. It wasn't like I immediately recovered fully and completely. But what was a miracle was that the whole process no longer confused me. Now it just it suddenly seemed like a really bad habit. I didn't think it was because I had this hole in my heart. I didn't think it was because, you know, um, my mama didn't love me enough or I was in a bad marriage. I just had a really bad habit. 
and I could make choices if I wanted to. And sometimes I would make the right choice more often than I was before. Uh, so I started experimenting with the rules and I said, well, if I can follow these rules, I'll, let me make rules that I'm actually willing to follow. And I started with very low bars, things that um, I said, well, I'm just not going to have chocolate on a Wednesday. Every other day I'll have it if I want to, but I'm going to skip a Wednesday just to prove that I'm in charge. I, I um, you know, when I found I was better able to, to uh, do that, and then I started expanding it and coming up with rules, things that I would always do, like I'll always start the day with a big green smoothie or I'll you know, I will always walk around the block for five minutes before I turn on my computer. Um, and I, and I recognize that just by drawing these very clear lines and separating my thinking, um, by definition into constructive thoughts, which wanted me to follow my rules and destructive thoughts that wanted me to break the rules that I started to have these choices. And, um, I kept the journal for eight years and slowly but surely I got thin and I got rid of my health problems for the most part. And um, as I was getting divorced in 2015, I was a minor partner in a publishing company. And the CEO said to me, Glenn, we need to write a book so we can attract better authors. We need to prove that we know what we're doing with marketing ourselves. And I said, well, I have this crazy journal of me versus my inner pig. He says, great, turn it into a book. So I send it to him. Like two months later, I send it to him. And he says, Glenn, this is great. I don't eat donuts. Donuts are pig slop. And I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. He proceeds to lose almost 100 pounds over the next 18 months or so, I think. Um, we published it. It absolutely took off. And um, slowly, slowly and then not so slowly, it absolutely took off. And now we have more reviews than the Da Vinci Code. And, um, and like more than 13,000 people reviewed our book. And um, I've got a whole bunch of coaches working for me. And I run around telling people that I have a pig inside me and maybe they do too. No, there's a lot more to it we can talk about as we go along. But that's that's my basic story. Wow, that's uh, that's really amazing. Thank you so much for sharing all that. And I'm, I'm so happy you went into all those details because so much of that so many of those details are so important to know. Um, so let me start with the, with the naming that voice thing, because I've heard this before. Um, I actually just read this book called the confidence gap and it's, I can't tell you the author's name. Um, but he mentions a lot of the same practice where, you know, building confidence, it's, it's, you know, what we're trying to do is we're trying to reprogram our brain to get out of this, out of this mode of not being confident, not feeling confident, like these automatic triggers that say we can't do it, you know, like, oh, I want to go back to school and get this, get my master's degree in business. And you say that and you're like, that's a great idea. And then all of a sudden there's just like automatically a voice that says, no, you can't do it. And then you, you can't do it. Or I want to go up to that girl and ask her on a date. And then as soon as you think that there's a voice that automatically comes and says, no, you can't do that. You're a loser. She'll dump you, you know, she'll reject you, whatever. And you never do it. So part of the technique of getting over that and building this confidence is actually, is actually recognizing that voice and labeling it. He calls it, um, leaves on a stream or something like that, like, like lily pads on a stream or something like that. And when you see that thought come, you go, Oh, that's just a leaf on a stream. And then you let it go. And then you go back to the thought that you had originally yeah. instead of automatically triggering that unconfident thought. So there is some psychology you probably know better than I do to actually being able to name the thing and then that helps you overcome it. Oh, sure. 
Sure. And what, what we found is that there are a number of other components that make it possible to ignore and let go of that leaf in the stream. Um, one is that there's always some false logic inherent in what the thing is saying. And you want to be able to ignore it, but a lot of times it's very appealing and you think it makes sense. So, for example, it would be just as easy to start tomorrow. You worked out hard enough. You won't gain weight. It's probably true that I won't gain weight on that day. That's probably not a lie. But the idea that it would be just as easy to start tomorrow isn't true because the principle of neuroplasticity says what fires together, wires together. So if you have a craving and then you indulge it, you reinforce the craving, you're more likely to have the craving tomorrow. If you're in a hole, you really got to stop digging and using use the present moment to be healthy. We found that by identifying the half truth and the bigger lie and the false logic that the pig uses, and you could call it a food demon or you could call it a junkyard dog, as long as it's not a cute pet. Um, by disempowering that false logic and exposing it to the light of day, it's like the greased shoot that went from stimulus to response before is no longer quite as greased. So now, now it doesn't seem to make sense. It's like there's a bunch of sandpaper on the shoot and you can still go down it if you want to, but you know that you're, you know that you're going against your own previous best thinking and you don't have the excuse anymore. So it, it makes it more likely that you will stay with your, your, your current plans. The, the other thing that we found is that um, because overeating seems to be a erroneous activation of the emergency response system inside of us, um, you know, the, the feast and famine system that's designed to locate as many calories as possible in a shorter time as possible because we grew up in an environment, we evolved in an environment where calories and nutrition were not always available. Um, because it seems like it's a part of the survival drive, but it's gone wrong. It's been redirected towards a lot of these industrial foods. We find that deactivating that part of the nervous system, it's, we, we believe that it's the sympathetic nervous system that gets us all revved up for action. And if we can deactivate that and activate the parasympathetic nervous system, which tell us, tells us that it's okay to rest and digest and problem solve and think, then we're more likely to be able to think logically in the first place and not act on impulse or with urgent need. And so I tell people to do something very simple, very simple. You start with one simple rule, and like, like we're talking about. You wake up when you see the pig wants you to cross it. Um, and then you do what Laurie Hammond calls 7-11 breaths. You breathe in for a count of seven. I'm not going to do it now because it takes a little while. And you breathe out for a count of 11. In for seven, out for 11. Why does that work? Well, if we were in the wild and a hungry bear was chasing us, we wouldn't have time to breathe out for longer than we breathed in. We'd be like <laughs> getting as much oxygen as possible so we could keep running as fast as we possibly can. So the fact that we're taking the time to breathe longer out than in, it seems to signal the brain that the, there's no emergency here um, and it's okay to relax and think about this a little bit. The next thing that we figured out was that if you carry around something to write with and you write down the squeal in total, um, that writing seems to be an upper brain activity, whereas binging is a lower brain activity. So that too moves the battleground from the um, sympathetic to the parasympathetic, from the reptilian brain to the, to the neocortex. And you're just better able to think and go through these 
these techniques that we um, discovered originally. So you, you put it all together and then you, you know, you, you link it to why you want to do it in the first place. Like you don't want to just set up a rule to have a Nazi policeman in your head saying, you should not do this. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to set up a rule because you're trying to accomplish something. Like I, you know, I want to be a tall, thin man that can climb mountains and be a leader in the world and, you know, live a long, healthy life. So if you, if you ask yourself when you're done with this whole technique, what would make me a happier, better person if I stick with the plan, then you're teaching yourself to start getting the dopamine from that fantasy of being, you know, these things you want to accomplish rather than getting it from the chocolate, et cetera. Last thing is that often this all interplays with genuine nutrition. People are more likely to overeat if they have deprived their body of genuine nutrition. So when people are trying to lose weight too quickly, they're more likely to have these overeating episodes. If they are cutting out some major nutrient from their diet and they don't realize it, they're more likely to have these overeating episodes. So what eventually really got me to stop was I had all these techniques to put the brake on. And then I started having a, a kale banana smoothie when I would have the craving. And the kale banana smoothie would not get me higher in the way that the chocolate would because chocolate is kind of a drug with the overmeaning caffeine and sugar and, and fat, all that kind of stuff. But it, it, would, um, it would make me feel content. It would scratch the itch. And then it was easy. Then it was really easy after that. So I always ask myself, is there any genuine nutritional need behind this craving? Um, and you want to redirect the survival drive in that direction. So, yeah, that's... That's in a nutshell what we do. No, that's great. And people really underestimate the power of using the two things you mentioned there, which is breathing and actual nutrition. Because, you know, what I have found as a nutrition coach working with people um, who want to lose weight, it's not that it's not that overweight people are eating too much. It's that they're eating too much too fat, like they're binging. You know, like I know plenty of overweight people who they'll go the whole day without eating and they're they're not doing it as a, as a way to lose weight. They're just not hungry. They're caught up with other stuff, but man, in that last two hours of the day, they'll put thousands of calories away very quickly. And then they'll go to bed and they won't get the the restorative sleep they need. Um, they'll get the heartburn. And then, and then it's a a vicious cycle because, well, now they, now that food, like you probably know the hyperpalatable food starts triggering that mammalian brain, which starts triggering all these stress hormones, which starts triggering depression, anxiety. And then what do you do to get through that? Well, then you just keep eating more and it's just a vicious cycle. It's a vicious cycle on top of not drinking enough water, drinking too much cola, high fructose corn syrup. Um, so like me, I probably eat the same amount of calories throughout the day as an overweight person. It's just that my calories are much more nutrient dense and they're spread out in a way to where they are, you know, and I'm using things like digestive enzymes. And I got to tell you the biggest thing that will make the biggest difference in people's nutrition. I shouldn't say the biggest, but one of the biggest is the breathing, but also the chewing. Because, you know, when you breathe and then you turn on your parasympathetic, you also turn on your stomach acid. And this is why, uh, you know, proton pump inhibitors and all of these, you know, gastric, um, uh, you know, gastric medications, they're some of the most sold medications in the country because so many people are dealing with heartburn and, uh, and GERD and these sorts of things and are getting these surgeries where they have to physically repair their esophageal sphincter because of so much binge eating and so much 
lack of actually breaking food down at the point of entry to where they're forcing their stomach to do all the work. And we think, Hey, our stomach is made of hydrochloric acid. Of course it breaks everything, but it doesn't, we shut it down when we're in stress. And as you probably know, coming from, you know, a stressed lifestyle, as you did, uh, if you are stressed and eating, your stomach is not digesting. Your, your stomach is not turning on hydrochloric acid and you know, the food is not passing through you properly. And this is also why you get so many gut disorders. And then these gut disorders turn into all these other problems. So, um, you know, one of the things that I work on with people to, to start with before I ever say, here's the food you need to eat. Here's the supplement. I go, Hey, we're going to sit down. And when you eat, you're going to take, you know, deep breaths. And this actually makes me understand like why Pete, why families say grace at dinner. You know, we, we, we've lost that over the years, but it is an ancient practice because they knew back then they go, if you don't settle your body down, if you don't settle yourself into a parasympathetic state and breathe and even like start believing in a higher power and these sorts of things, hmm. your body's not going to take the food properly. And so we've let that go. And subsequently we have all these health problems. That's so interesting. So you tell people to breathe and eat mindfully, which is always a good idea. Um, do you give any more specific advice about chewing? Like, how do I know when I've chewed my food? Well, it's a funny question because people, it's like one of those grandma, um, things, you know, like chew your food. Right. And you think, okay, grandma, but you don't realize that, you know, like you said, um, this woman says, when you start thinking about food, you got to slow down and you got to breathe. Um, I've caught myself because, uh, you know, I'm also a binge eater or a recovering binge eater. And when I'm binge eating, there's no breathing going on. It's like, uh -huh. it's like panic breathing, you know, and you don't realize you're, it you're, you're not enjoying the food and letting it nourish you. You're not even thinking you're not even like, you're just in a total, like I'm thinking about my day. I'm thinking about all the places I've screwed up. I'm thinking about regrets. I'm thinking about ex-girlfriends. I'm thinking about things I said to people that I shouldn't have said, you know, I'm not thinking about the food. And before I know it, you know, a pint of ice cream is gone. Um, or I'm like, gonna go, I'm going back and forth and half the bag of chips is gone. Um, but the second you slow down and start breathing, you go, Oh, I'm, I'm present here. I am like, it, it literally just takes like that, that recognition and the way you do it is brilliant where you actually give it a name. Um, cause that helps recognize it. But you know, what I tell people is I say 25 to 30 chews per bite and uh -huh. it's arduous. <laughs> and it's just like one of those things where you go, Oh my God. And your jaw starts to hurt, but you realize that you become more full faster. So you don't eat a whole bag of potato chips. You might go from eating a whole bag of potato chips to eating a couple hands of potato chips, as long as you're eating the whole thing. And actually, if you're going to sit down and say, I'm going to have a real meal and actually to take it even one step further. Um, when you have a smoothie, you got to chew the smoothies too. People forget that the smoothie is food and the, the smoothie also contains, um, glucose and when you, uh, and carbohydrates, starchy carbohydrates. So when you chew, you turn on your, um, salivary amylase, which is also a natural digestive enzyme we know as saliva. And that is a natural digestive enzyme that breaks down the food. So when you actually chew, whether it's your smoothie or whatever you're eating, you're turning on this natural digestive enzyme that actually triggers to your brain. Oh, Hey, there's, there's nutrition coming here. The body starts to get that nutrition better. There's nutrition coming here. So we don't, you know, we're getting all the fiber, we're getting all the vitamins, we're getting all the minerals. So we don't physically need to eat anymore because like, you know, from the hyperpalatable food situation, 
situation, you're basically eating like cardboard, you know, you're yeah. eating high fructose syrup and you're eating like cardboard, with literally, yeah. literally cardboard with, with, <laughs> you know, sprinkled with sugar and salt and all this stuff. So the body's not actually getting nutrition and that's why you can eat so much of it. But the second you start activating these digestive enzymes, like salivary amylases, the other amylases, the lipases, um, these sorts of things, or if you even double down and take a digestive enzyme supplement or an HCL with betaine pepsin supplement, and the body starts actually literally physically taking the nutrition out of the food and moving it to the body where the body then communicates to the brain, oh, we're getting nutrition because you're chewing so much or because you're doubling down with these uh, supplements, um, you start getting full way sooner than you ever got full before. And this is kind of a natural way that, you know, I hate to say lose weight because I like to say you lose weight as a side effect. It's not the main effect, but you start to also gain that mindfulness that does eventually uh, result in less food being consumed, more satiation, and of course, uh, losing weight. Mm. Cool. But I'm no doctor, you know, <laughs> uh, that's just, that's just what I've learned over the years of really focusing on the gut and diving into these topics. And, um, it is interesting. You might be the first psychologist that I've had on here. Um, which is crazy considering this is a podcast all about like mental health. Um, but I do talk so much about nutrition, but, um, you know, I have, I have, um, like offered psychologists, like my services to say, you know, the thing that you're missing in your practice is you're missing the mindful eating because these people come in with these, probably these, like you said, like you had a, you had an issue with your mom and you know, your chocolate cravings probably come from some deep rooted thing that developed when you were one years old. And a lot of people, you know, Freudian but, well, are a lot but, like that. But, but, but so here's the thing. Could, could, could I say a bunch about that? Of course. It, yeah, yeah, totally. Up. I have a different perspective on mindful eating and emotional eating than most psychologists do. Um, First of all, there's a dual relationship between food and emotions. People think it goes one way. People think that I have these uncomfortable emotions and they cause me to overeat or they cause cravings for me to overeat. But if you look at the studies on operant conditioning of animals, you can look at the correlates of emotions in animals. For example, um, heightened blood pressure, galvanic skin response, heightened perspiration, heightened heart rate, perspiration. And if you, if you reinforce those, so you take a baboon and every time that baboon has high blood pressure, you give it a sugar reward, that baboon's blood pressure will raise to a steady state that's higher than if you hadn't done that because you've taught the baboon that it gets, it gets calories when it raises its blood pressure. Um, and so a lot of people say they're too anxious and they can't sleep unless they overeat. But what if the overeating was actually reinforcing the anxiety? Mm -hmm. what, what, what if you're and so there's a dual relationship. It goes in both directions. The second is there's a, there's a space between stimulus and response where we have the opportunity to act. So when it's not really accurate to say. I was feeling very sad, therefore I ate chocolate. It's not really accurate. It's, I was feeling very sad. I decided to reverse my previous best intent. I made a conscious decision to eat the chocolate cake that my mother used to feed me when I was a kid, when I was feeling sad, and then I felt better temporarily. There's a space between stimulus response and response, and there's all this cognition in that space where you have an opportunity to intervene. So even to the sense that it does go from emotion to behavior, it's really emotion 
thought slash justification to behavior. And you have the opportunity to intervene. Um, third thing about that is that we're not really just eating for comfort. We're eating to get high with food because the things that people think of as comfort foods are unnatural concentrations of calories and stimulation, which another name for that is a drug. And I, nothing against eating chips and chocolate and pizza if you if you want to and you don't seem to be bothered by that. But um, I think it's important to stop telling us ourselves we're eating for comfort or we're eating for just emotional reasons. We're actually eating to get that high. We're actually getting to get that high with food. And that makes it, uh, it gives you a certain cognitive dissonance so that you don't want to do it just as well. If you don't believe me, just think about going to the dentist. Has the dentist ever said to you, I'm sorry, we're out of Novocaine. Can I give you some chocolate to numb you out? Can I inject you with some chocolate? They, they don't, it's my little joke, but it's a good way to remember this. Okay. Then the last problem, um, mindful eating is the goal. That is the goal. I think I kind of hacked my way into it. And when I thought about it more thoroughly, I realized that there, there are a lot of problems with mindful eating as the solution to overeating. Because first of all, we don't live in a world where it's possible to be mindful all the time. And you just had a baby and you know that there are all kinds of things impinging upon your senses every day and all kinds of decisions you have to make, right? It's hard enough to get an hour of sleep, much less to sit down and meditate and, and eat mindfully. Um, you know, we have computers and television shows and repairmen and, you know, all types of incredible stimulation that take us away from being mindful. Nevertheless, it's a good goal. But secondly, the, the billions of dollars that are being spent by the food and advertising industry to break your natural hunger in full meters are actually extraordinarily powerful. And, and so it's a little bit of a, it's a little bit of an impossibility to say, I'm going to eat this bag of potato chips mindfully, right? Because that bag of potato chips was probably engineered to have six different very minute uh, variations in flavor in order to stimulate your desire for variety. Because in, in nature, if we found variety, we're probably finding a variety of micronutrients. So there's an evolutionary button that says, don't stop eating if you keep finding slightly different varieties because the, um, you know, because the, I think there are chemicals within it that, that interfere with your gut's ability to sense nutrition, to, to sense that it's full because um, the way that the packaging is designed, I, re I remember this, I'm gonna go away from potato chips, but I remember this major food bar manufacturer where the VP told me that the most profitable thing they ever did was to take the vitamins out of the bar and put the money into the packaging instead. Mm -hmm. And they designed this very vibrant multicolored packaging because in nature, a uh, multitude of you know diverse uh, vibrant colors would signal a multitude of micronutrients that were available. That's why the they peacock. say either. Yeah. Yeah. Eat yeah. the rainbow. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Green, green lettuce, blueberries, yellow, yellow carrots, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, 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 and so left our own devices and left to capitalism's own devices. And I'm not, I'm not a communist, but, um, you know, Winston Churchill said capitalism is the worst form of government, government, except for all the others. And there are a lot of downfalls for it. Um, you know, left to our own devices, we don't really have the ability to eat mindful with all this stuff impinging upon us, at least not as much as we would like to. 
So what I suggest is that you examine your dangerous impulses. You really think through what role these things should play in your life. So I will, you know, I'll only ever eat burritos on a Wednesday and no more than two backs or something like that. And, and you set very specific boundaries so you don't have to keep making decisions about them. Willpower is the ability to make good decisions and it's not really a genetic gift. It's more like gas we get in the tank every morning that we spend by the end of the day uh, over the course of making decision after decision after decision. When you specify exactly what those decisions are beforehand, then you're eliminating the need to use willpower. You're eliminating the need to think about it all day long. And your mind, this is what clears up the food obsession. When, when people don't have all these difficult food decisions to make all day long, then they can think about other things. If you're not sure, like, for example, if you're told eat well 90% of the time, just indulge yourself 10% of the time. Okay, great. It's good advice. But which is the 90% and which is the 10%? You're busy making decisions all the time. And that causes you to think about food all the time. And it causes your inner pig to say, is this the time? Can we do it? Can we do it? Can we do it? How about now? How about now? How about now? And it wears you down eventually. So if you want to be more mindful with food, think through the places that you're losing control. Think through the role that you want those foods to play in your life, those behaviors to play in your life. Try to make decisions about them beforehand. Within reason, don't get carried away. Don't make 43 rules. Um, and then you will find that what's left over is an area where you can safely be mindful about food um, without getting distracted by all of these other possibilities. Okay, I'm done. No, those are great points. And I, sure. I, I think the, the example I gave of the potato chips, that, that was a bad example um, because quite frankly, I, as a nutrition coach, I would never tell somebody, hey, only eat a half a bag of potato chips. In I, fact, I forgot, I've forgotten you said potato chips. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, but I, uh, I did. And, you know, I, I caught myself when I was saying it, it was just the top of mind. But regardless, um, you know, what I believe in is, is st stacking the odds in your favor with nutrition. So this, this does go to mindful eating because mindful eating, like you said, willpower is very difficult for most people. They have tried willpower. Again, the, the misconception I think for, for overweight people, obese people, I've never been overweight or obese. So, you know, I might be talking totally out of line, but uh, I think the misconception is, is that they are not trying to lose weight. I think they're trying harder than anybody really believes they're trying. And oh, yeah. I think that's part of the frustration. But the fact is, is that when it comes and they're, and they've heard this thing, mindful eating, well, what does that mean to somebody? Be, be mindful what you eat. Well, it's very difficult to be mindful when you're surrounded by electronics and porn and hyperpalatable foods and, you know, Facebook and all the, you know, work and all this stuff. Um, so it's really about stacking nutritionally the odds in your favor. And what I tell people, um, or what I recommend to people is this all starts in the first hour of your day. If you can just master the first hour of your day, the rest of it is pretty easy yes. because what happens is, is when you wake up and I, I just started reading Jordan Peterson's 12 rules. And uh, it's so funny because he, he mentions this and this is the thing that I've been saying for a long time, which is start your day with fat and protein. If you start your day with fat and protein, and it's funny because most breakfast foods out there are 
high sugar, high carbohydrate, high glycemic. And most people start their day with uh, high amounts of caffeine. And what you're doing when you get that combination or, or one or the other is you're starting this glycemic roller coaster of your body's blood sugar. And it's your body's blood sugar that controls your cravings mostly. Cause when your blood sugar drops, you get hungry and you have to raise it. And with these high sugar, high glycemic foods, it only spikes, uh, it, it'll spike your insulin and it'll drop your insulin. And then you get hungry again. And you know, this is the problem with breakfast cereals. Like I used to eat all of these breakfast cereals and I'd eat it. And then literally 30 minutes later, I'd be starving and I would just crush a whole box of cereal in maybe a day or two. And, you know, same thing with bagels, same thing with donuts, same thing. Everyone's like, I'm going to be healthy. I'm going to eat a muffin instead of a donut. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, and the big thing now is I'm just going to drink coffee and not have breakfast. Well, you're going to start starving really fast because you've just shot off all this norepinephrine and all this cortisol that's taking your blood sugar and wiping it out of your blood. And so now your blood needs to rate your blood sugar needs to raise again. So you're going to start craving sugars and sweets. And this is why people on the keto diet always crash harder than anybody else because they've deprived themselves of glucose for so long when they've never done that before. So my point is, is that, Hey, instead of doing these crazy diets or trying to fast and do all those things, and I'm, I'm all for intermittent fasting and all that stuff. I do it myself. It's a great tool, but stack the odds in your favor, have a high protein, high fat breakfast. That way you literally like eat a steak in the morning, eat eggs in the morning, eat something. If you're vegan, find like a high protein vegan substance, whatever it is so that you can stay satiated for hours that way. And then the next craving you have isn't, Oh, it's going to be something, it's going to be bread and it's going to be, you know, uh, a, uh, uh, like a soda. And it's going to be, it's going to be like, no, I could probably get away with like a hard boiled egg and some leafy greens or something, you know, like your body's physically not that hungry. And then this carries you through the rest of the day. Smart. Yeah. I, I start most of my days with, um, a bunch of greens and sometimes some beans on top of it. And, um, just to carry me through my morning meetings and, you know, that I'm not that hungry until the afternoon. Yeah. Whatever, and, and whatever you, it you is. Set, set yourself up for success in the morning. You really do. You really like, uh, like the most transformational thing I've probably done in my life. If I look at like my whole body of work throughout the last 10 years, when my transformations really happened was building a solid morning routine. And for everybody, it's different. Like, you know, you could make recommendations for people to do things, but it's like, you have to kind of find it for yourself. Um, but nutritionally to really stack the odds in your favor. Um, and this is in my opinion, like what mindful eating is, because once you do that, then you, then it's easy, right? It's easy to sit down and go, Oh yeah. Like if I'm craving potato chips, I'm not going to eat the whole bag. I'm going to eat like I eat, like I eat these stupid, like uh, plantain potatoes they are supposed to be healthier, right? These keto plantain potato chips, whatever. Um, I could eat the whole bag cause they are that delicious, but really like I'll eat a handful and I'm like, okay, I'm good. You know, I don't need, I don't have to eat the whole bag. Um, and that's because I've done all of the work before that point to be like, my body is not, is not devoid of nutrition. You right. know, it has right. all the vitamins and minerals it needs. So it's not. And, saying, and, they, and that's what, that's the kind of thing I was talking about when I said, you have to take care of your genuine, authentic nutritional needs. There are rules that you can't make that go against your body. Like if you said, I will never pee again, your bladder is going to tell you otherwise. And if you say, you know, I'm only going to have, um, I'm, I'm only going to have a thousand calories and I'm not going to eat it until six o'clock at night. You, you're probably going to have a hard time as an overeater to, yeah. to get through like that. Yeah. 
Yeah. And it's just so funny too, how this also carries into like alcoholism and drugs, you know, where, um, you know, there's this great book called, uh, the mood cure by this woman, uh, Julia Ross. And she talks all about using amino acids to help people with, and she has like these kind of specific recipes of, you know, this amount of tyrosine, this amount of, um, you know, phenylalanine, this amount of, uh, glutamine to help somebody with, um, you know, with, uh, like, uh, like, like actually she goes pretty crazy, like with cocaine addiction or with alcoholism, any sorts of things. So she's literally helping people. She, we know that alcoholics have much less, um, thiamine, right. B1, um, they're thiamine deficient, they're thiamine deficient before they start drinking. And then the drinking depletes them of thiamine. So you could, you could help somebody, you might not cure a person's, um, alcoholism, but you can certainly help them by giving them thiamine rich foods. And then of course, like some kind of digestive enzyme. So, you know, that they're physically like digesting it. Um, you know, same thing goes for a lot of these drug addictions and alcohol addictions. They are nutrition based. Like your body is literally craving certain nutrients. And instead of giving it the nutrients, you're giving it this kind of hack, this kind of bypass to, to give yourself the dopamine. So you kind of forget that, Oh, my body is deficient in B12 and it is deficient in choline. It is deficient in omega three. Um, but I'm going to numb the pain. And I, maybe you don't like the word numb, but yeah, I'm going to forget the pain. I'm going to override the pain with, um, these other substances because I've not properly identified what that void is. Cool beans. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm actually curious, Glenn, before we sign off, you were talking about this, um, study that you conducted. And, uh, you know, one thing I was thinking was to get this information, what kind of questions were you asking people on these, um, uh, on oh, these um, questionnaires? So, so this was back in the days that click were clicks were cheap on the internet. It was like 1998, 1999. And I took out an ad on, um, I guess the service was called GoTo back then, which became Overture, which became Bing, and which is a Microsoft service now. And if people were searching for a solution to stress, like stress management or life stress or something like that, I would intercept them and I would ask them, um, I would ask them what kinds of foods do they struggle with when they can't stop eating, when they can't stop, when they feel stressed and they can't stop eating. And I had a long checklist of um, different possibilities. Like we, we made a list of all the things people struggle with beforehand using focus groups. And so then we quantified it like that. And, um, you know, it was not the most scientifically rigorous double blind controlled study in the world, but there were a lot of people. And I think that the results were significant and showed a pattern, but it, it sent me down the wrong path. You know, it made me think that the cure was going to be curing the emotions. The way I think about it now, it's like, um, it's like the emotions are a fire in a fireplace. And if you have a roaring fire in a well-contained fireplace in the living room, that's actually an asset and not a liability. It becomes the center of hearth and home. Uh, people gather around and they hug and they cry and they tell stories and they, they make memories, right? But if there's a hole in the fireplace, then, then you can burn down the house. And so I really focus on the fireplace. I used to think I had to put out the fire, but now I think what I really want to do is focus on the fireplace to sever the link between emotions and overeating. So it's, it's faster because, you know, it could take four or five years of psychotherapy to really solve someone's emotional difficulties. But in, in a couple of months, you could build a better fireplace and, you know, make it safer to have those feelings in the first place. And then a good therapist can do their job 
um, because the person's not covering over the feelings and you can actually look at the fire. So that, that's what I think of it now. It's, it's a different paradigm. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I'm curious just to kind of wrap things up here, you know, like you've had a pretty incredible, um, you know, self-healing journey yourself and and now you're coaching people and you have coaches that are working for you. Um, and obviously like you are touching on such an important topic uh, of that, that a lot of people deal with. Um, are there any supplements or nootropics or any kind of like biohacks that you personally implement or that you recommend people implement? So, so my, um, my my program is diet agnostic. I work with people on any dietary philosophy where they're not trying to starve themselves. As long as they are, we tend to do best with people who are willing to have regular meals for at least three to six months until they get the binging out of their system. And then if they want to return to intermittent fasting and, you know, one meal a day or something like that, there's, there's no problem, but it doesn't seem to work to, overcome overeating, at least not with our method in the very beginning. It takes a couple of months of really flooding your body with nutrition throughout the day in order to cool these signals down and, and really take control. Um, so I just want to say my, my program is diet agnostic. So the fact that I, I eat a whole foods plant-based diet and I, I take a couple of supplements. I take, um, I take uh, supplements from Dr. Furman, which is a kind of a natural vegan based supplement and i use barley grass juice powder um, along with my vegetable juice and banana smoothies and things like that um, i i find that leafy greens are a godsend there are some medical conditions which would prevent you from having that so please check with your doctor but i find that um, when people are having cravings especially for you know, salty things, they typically have not had enough leafy greens. And one of the tech, one of the tips we found for people recovering from a binge quicker and, you know, killing the tendency to want to go get more is to like take a half a pound of leafy greens and put it in the blender and just drink it down like medicine, like a little bit of water, drink it down like medicine. I think what you're doing is you're telling the body that there actually is genuinely healthy nutrition out there. Um, and it, it kind of quiets the fire. So there are those types of things. I, I myself find, um, you know, if I, I need to have enough fruit and beans and um, yeah, I need to have enough whole carbohydrates, not, not, not grains, not refined carbohydrates, but whole carbohydrates, whole natural carbohydrates. And I'm, um, you know, I feel more stable throughout the day and then I don't get the... I, I don't think I've had a sugar craving like for, for candy or chocolate or anything. I don't think I've had that for 10 years. Um, it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And if I don't get enough leafy greens one day, I have salt cravings. Mm. I don't entirely understand the connection there, but I get salt cravings if I don't get enough leafy greens over the course of the day. Wow. What's your favorite leafy green? Um, I actually like collard greens. I know that's kind of weird, but, um, yeah, I'll make some steamed collard greens and I'll, they'll usually go along with my beans. And, um, I, I like kale juice in my smoothies and I like romaine lettuce for my salads. Yeah. Very cool. I love collard greens. I, uh, I put them in my smoothie and, um, I love to cook them. I love to cook them up being a vegan. I was a vegan for a couple of years and it, it, it if nothing else, it taught me a deep appreciation for vegetables and how to cook them and how to work with them. Yeah. Um, and I still, I still use that practice to this day. I, I don't think I ate a vegetable until I was 21. 
Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm making up for lost time now. Yeah. Well, keep up the good fight, my friend. Uh, you're doing really great work and uh, it was such a pleasure to talk to you. And, um, I'd love to have you back sometime and, and keep this conversation going. Cause I think, uh, we just barely scratched the surface on just so many interesting things. Um, you know, if people want to find you, work with you, contact you, learn more about you, where's a good place to send somebody online? Oh, um, I can get your free copy of the book in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format if you go to neverbingeagain.com and click on the big red button. There's a reader bonus list. You'll get a free copy of the book. You'll get a set of food plan starter templates. So we created a set of rules that kind of works with um, different dietary philosophies, whether you're, you know, whether you're low carb or high carb or point counting or calorie counting um, or vegan or carnivore. There's a there's a set of templates that you can start with. And we also recorded a set of full length coaching sessions because I know this sounds kind of weird. You must be thinking, why does Eric have the psychologist who has a pig inside of him on, on the show? And it, it sounds cruel or, or harsh, but it's really not. It's a very life-giving process. And you can hear people go from feeling hopeless and depressed and despairing about food to feeling hopeful and enthusiastic and confident in just one session. It's all at neverbingeagain.com. Click the big red button. Awesome. And when we release this, we'll be sure to put that all in our show notes, put that in the descriptions of all the podcasts where it's located. And hopefully people take up on that offer and, uh, and choose to read that book. Cause I'm sure it's full of a lot of great information. Okay. Awesome. Thank, well, thank you so much, Eric. Yes. Thank you. And thank you listener and viewer for enjoying this podcast today. Remember if you're new here, subscribe, hit that little bell icon. If you're watching this on YouTube and take some time and binge on through all the old holistic Tropics podcasts, because I'm sure you're going to find something that you love there. If you love this podcast, which I'm sure you did. Otherwise till next time, peace. Thanks for listening. For more brain-boosting info, in-depth articles, and show notes, check out holisticnootropics.com. 